Welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. And we have been listening to a piece titled Flight of Windmills, recorded in 2010 by Dan Mack. And Dan Mack is on the phone with me right now. And let me explain to you who he is. He's an accomplished musician, songwriter, and composer. He's based out of the greater greater Washington, D.C. area, mid-Maryland area, and he's been performing for a long, long period of time. And as you can tell, he's very accomplished on the guitar, not just acoustic, as we just heard, and we'll hear in a little while. He can also play electric, classical, and from what I understand, he plays the mandolin sometimes. Dan, how are you? I'm very well, thanks for calling, Todd. Well, you're welcome. And how did you come up with the title for Flight of Windmills? Oh, well, Flight of the Windmills, it just, it just sort of happened. Uh, the, the song itself, uh, I didn't have a title for it at the beginning, but I was just looking for something kind of uh, a little humorous, to uh, lighthearted to be something that would go along with the feel of the tune. And, uh, and that's what I came up with. Uh, interestingly, I wound up playing that a few years ago in Scotland at the uh, uh, Orkney Folk Festival. And in Scotland, as you may know, they have a whole lot of windmills. So that was kind of fun to be able to play Flight of the Windmills in Scotland, where there's a lot of windmills. Now, how did you get to go to that festival? Uh, Well, this is uh, an interesting story. I'll try not to drag it out too long. But uh, my brother and his family go to the Orkney Islands, uh, which is in the north of Scotland, uh, fairly regularly. They've been going there for years. And uh, they, a few years ago, asked me and my wife if we would like to come and join them there. And they would, if we could get over to to Scotland, they would put us up for as long as we want to stay, for a a week or whatever, and get us from Edinburgh up to Orkney and put us up and take care of us for a while there. So we, it took me about a tenth of a second to reply and say, yes, we're, we're buying tickets right now. And, uh, and as I was looking to see what there was to do while we were going to be in, uh, in Orkney, uh, it turns out that there is an Orkney folk festival going on right at the time that we were going to be there. And they also, in addition to the uh, mainline scheduled performers there, they also had an open stage, which was actually a, a contest. You had to apply to uh, perform, but and if they accepted your application, then you became one of uh, half. I don't know how many of us there were performing that day. Maybe eight or ten uh, acts that would perform on the uh, one of the stages there. And then they would choose a winner, and then that winner would gets to come back the next year uh, on the main stage as a paid performer. So uh, I I entered and was happily accepted and got to play there and do three songs for their o- open stage there. And it was uh, quite well received. I got a write-up in there in the Orkney Folk Festival paper and uh, in the little paper that they have there in, in Orkney. So that was a lot of fun. So you are a global musician. <laughs> right. That's my, my claim to global fame right there. Well, what are the chances that, well, one, it's really cool that you got invited over there, but what are the chances that you happen, would happen to be there right when the festival is going on? I mean, what a cool thing to have happen. 
yeah, it was quite serendipitous. Now, did you take your guitar or did you borrow one or, you know, get one over there? Well, we, I wound up taking my Santa Cruz mm -hmm. and I was a little uh, hesitant to do so because I thought, oh gosh, what if it gets uh, lost or crushed or something on the way? But uh, I, I couldn't guarantee that I was going to be able to find an instrument that was the quality of instrument and the right shape and size and everything that I wanted to play on. So I decided to go ahead and, and uh, take the chance and take my guitar. And it's a good thing I did because the one instrument that was was being uh, made ready for me to play or was was at my disposal was uh, was not a very good instrument and it needed new strings and new everything else. So I'm glad that I had my guitar there. Now, the did you take? Do you have a travel case? You know, especially designed for flight travel, or did you just take a regular hard case and made sure it was latched properly and so forth? Well, I don't have a uh, really travel worthy case. I I had my regular case with is very heavy, but it's not. It's it's a good case, but. Uh, from what I had heard from several other touring musicians, they were using a uh, one of the cases that it's essentially uh, uh, hard styrofoam almost, mm -hmm. and but it's very protective and it's very protective uh, for humidity and uh, temperature as well. And they said, you know, it, it will it will protect it against one thing, and then you know if, if something gets dropped on it, it'll protect it, but then it, if it breaks, then that's it. Then you have to get a new case. Yeah. But they were, they're not that expensive. So that's what I've been using for quite a while because it's light too. The case that came with the guitar is quite heavy and it's hard to carry around. But the, uh, the one that I'm using now was made for the single guitars. And they're, uh, so I'm using one of those and it's, it's light and seems to be perfectly sturdy. Well, I was going to ask you if that if what you were describing was the the Godin or the the Seagull case. I have one of those too. It's one of my favorite cases. I don't use it as often as I should, just because I put one of my older guitars in it, which I don't perform with, and so it's down at the end of the line. If you know what I mean. But <laughs> yeah. I totally agree with you. It's the same material that a lot of the uh, well, I shouldn't say a lot. There was a line of body boards, boogie boards that came out back in the 1980s and they used that type of foam and they were very inexpensive. They hardly ever broke and they were just wonderful for the, the person because I used to own surf shops and right. they were wonderful from a, a store owner standpoint because I could offer an inexpensive, they were a color either in like a pink or a blue. Um, and yours and my cases are the, the foam is more of a gray black almost. Right. But what that, that's cool because you're one of only about three or four people I know who even know what that kind of case is. Uh, well, I got it because it was light, and then I found out that it was going to be good for travel and would withstand some shock and said, well, this is, this is for me. Now, speaking of guitars, you, your main acoustic steel string is the Santa Cruz. Am I correct? Yes, that's correct. The Santa Cruz that I got uh, for my birthday uh, in... Oh gosh, eleven years ago now. Mm -hmm. So it's it's uh, I I like it very much. It's got a really nice sound, and it's a, a good size and uh, uh, shape for me. It's, it's an OM uh, shape, and uh, 
which is smaller than the dreadnought shape. I used to play dreadnoughts, but it, they're just getting too big. As I, I guess I'm shrinking as I get older. So, <laughs> uh, it's, it, it sounds good and is plenty loud and it's got a really sweet tone. So give me a history of Dan Max guitars, starting from <laughs> when you first started as, as a kid or whenever you picked up guitar or any instrument for that matter. Well, my very first instrument was a clarinet. In my family, it was a musical family. Uh, My dad had played uh, in jazz bands uh, in the the Roaring Twenties, basically, and then he he was a trumpet player there. My mother played violin and sang. And so in our family, the question was not, do you want to play an instrument? It was, what instrument do you want to play? Mm So my my brother chose various brass instruments. My sister played flute, and I played clarinet. We actually had little, did some little uh, music uh, combos in our house sometimes, and that was a lot of fun. So, but everybody played something. And my first guitar was one that my sister brought back from Mexico when she had gone there in preparation for joining the Peace Corps. And she went there for a language immersion thing and brought back a guitar for me. It was a $15 guitar that she brought there. And it was great. And I still have it, as a matter of fact. You do? Uh, I do, yeah. Uh, it, and I didn't have a case for it. I just carried it around. But I said, and I actually bumped it into a, uh, the seat of a bus at one point when I was traveling around and put a little hole in it, which I'm finally now getting repaired all these years later. <laughs> So were you uh, in high school at that point in time? Before. Yes, I was I was in high school. I was 15 and uh, started learning folk songs. You know, Peter, Paul, and Mary were my first heroes. And uh, so I learned, you know, Greenback Dollar, I think, was the first song I learned on guitar. Uh, but, yeah, it was, uh, it was great. I would uh, play and uh, people would come over to the house and we'd all jam on their things and teach, teach each other how to play stuff. And, uh, that was the first, my first exposure to guitar, right when the folk boom and the Beatles were coming out and everybody was starting to play guitar. So I was one of many, but uh, I stuck with it. Now, how long did you play that guitar before you moved towards, a, uh, you know, maybe a better one or a more expensive one? Uh-huh. I played it for until I was in college and I was a sophomore in college, I guess. And, uh, I knew I needed to get a better guitar, and a fellow that I knew had a Martin D28 for sale for $400, and I knew that was an awful lot of money to pay for a guitar back then, but, you know, I knew Martins were supposed to be good, and so I I bought this guitar, and uh, I still have that one, too. I I almost never uh, get rid of guitars once I have one. I just can't seem to let them go, but that was a great instrument, and Uh, I went back home after the school year that year with my new guitar. I took it on the airplane, got it home, and opened it up and tuned it back up because I'd loosened the strings. And there was this big crack started to pull up in this. Oh, no. I I felt my world was ending. But that was back when the airlines would actually pay for guitar repairs. Oh, uh, you know, I was probably one of the people that was <laughs> the last ones that, that got it paid for. But United Airlines paid for me to send it back to Martin, and they repaired it and sent it back to me. And it's been fine ever since. Now, what year is that guitar? I'm just curious. That is, the guitar is a 68. Okay. Uh, I got it 
probably in the 70, I guess, mm-hmm. 70 or yeah, thereabouts. It's interesting. My first Martin was a, a D28, and I purchased it, let's see, probably 19, maybe a year after you, you 1969 maybe, I think, is when I, I got mine. So, and then I unfortunately let it go in the mid 19, probably late 1970s for 400 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Wish I never had. But at the time, it was just one of those things I was doing buying and selling. Yeah. And oh well. So, how was long it, did you play the, the, the Martin? I played it for the longest time. I've started accumulating other instruments at the same time. And I've, I had electric guitar that actually before I got the Martin when I was still in high school, I, I built an electric guitar. You built um, it from a Heath kit. Yeah, it was. Uh, they had kits that you would buy and solder stuff together. And I bought a, a kit for their guitar and for an amp. So I had a, my own homemade instruments for there for a while. But the the uh, the D twenty eight was. Oh, let's see, and then I had a 12-string for a while. I traded that for a different six-string, a little Gibson that I still have. That's a nice little instrument. But I played the Martin as my main guitar until I got the uh, uh, my Kono, which is a classical guitar. When I went, I, I decided if I was going to be a musician, I better go to music school. So I went to Trinidad Conservatory of Music and studying classical guitar. So I needed a better classical guitar than I had. So I my parents bought me a, a really nice uh, Kono 15, which is a, a, a well-known uh, classical make. So that became my main guitar for playing classical stuff, but I still used the, the D28 for anything else. And I kept using that really until uh, until I bought the, uh, the Santa Cruz. And the reason I got the Santa Cruz was when I was playing in a band with my wife, and uh, she has a nice little Martin OM-21. And there were certain songs that that guitar sounded better on than the Martin did. The Martin, of course, has the big, big fat sound and the deep booming bass and everything. But these, there were a couple of tunes that I would use, I put a capo on and play up high and finger picking kind of tinkly little stuff. And it sounded much better on her guitar. I also learned that her instrument had a slightly wider neck, which is better for finger picking. So, mm-hmm. uh, one and one of the other fellows in the band had a Santa Cruz. So I said, "Well, I'd like that Santa Cruz, and I'm going to get one of my own." So that's when I wound up uh, getting the Santa Cruz. And the Martin has not seen much activity since I got the Santa Cruz. Well, I was going to ask you how you went about choosing the Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz and Collings are. The- Below Taylor and Martin, those are probably the two most well-known guitar brands, acoustic guitar brands, um, at least in my knowledge anyway. The But Collings seems to have a bigger following than Santa Cruz, but in my humble opinion, I think Santa Cruz makes up a, a better guitar. They're both excellent guitars, both boutique brands, but the... You see a lot of people play Collings who buy and sell and get another one and whatever, but when you see someone play a Santa Cruz, they they seem to hold on to them. Yeah, well, I can't verify that because, as I said, when I get a guitar, I seem to hold on to it for, for longer than anything. I just sort of accumulate them. But uh, I got the Santa Cruz because the other fellow in our band, 
Uh, his name is Don Walters, who is he's also an excellent musician. Yes, I know Don. Yeah. <clears throat> oh yeah, good. Yeah. So uh, he was playing a Santa Cruz at the time, and I liked the sound of his guitar, like the way it it felt, and so I said, yes, well, I'm going to get one of these. And then, interestingly, when I went to do so, there were there's nobody around here that sells Santa Cruz instruments. So, uh, and I wanted to get a new one because it was going to be for a milestone birthday and I wanted to get, you know, <laughs> uh, a new instrument. So, um, I called up Santa Cruz and spoke to some people there and they were making some at the time I said, well, we've got these ones we're making here. We've got 12 of them and all but one are, are, uh, spoken for already. And they were. Uh, uh, this regular OMPW, the pre-war version of their their uh, OM model, and but these ones, this twelve that they were making, were limited edition. Then they had it was the same body and everything, but they had a little bit more uh, bling on it. It has a, had a herringbone purfling uh, and you know some a little extra stuff just to make it look a little nicer. So I went ahead and. Uh, want, want to buy one so well, we don't sell to individuals you have to find a store that oh, no. sells them <clears throat> but there at the time there was a place in um, gosh I think it was Newmarket that was that sold boutique instruments so uh, he was the one that ordered the guitar f- for me and then when it came in I, I went up there and I purchased it from them well, very cool. Now, th- that one is what, a Sitka spruce top with a rosewood, Indian rosewood back and sides, I'm assuming, or is it a, a mahogany yes. back and sides? No, it's, it's rosewood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like that rosewood sound. Well, it tends to have a little more uh, low end, has almost a reverb quality to the sound. It's not quite as dry, I don't, in my opinion, as a mahogany would be. Right. I, I find that I like the rosewood sound. Uh, for for finger style stuff too, because I don't need that snap mm-hmm. uh, that you get when I'm you know you might want that for doing more flat picking or strumming kind of thing, but I I like the the uh, the color that you get for finger style. Now, were you, is that the guitar you played when you did Flight of the Windmills? Yes, it is. Yeah. That's the guitar I played. I was, there's another little funny story about that when I called. The, the guitar was still being made. So uh, my wife said, well, you should call them and see if you can get pictures of it. So I did. And so I, I called them up and, and the, uh, they, they took a couple pictures of it, what was still on the bench and sent them to me. So I have pictures of my guitar in utero, as it were. Oh, cool. Very, very, very cool. Now, on your website, which is Dan Mac Music, for those of you folks listening, he's got Flight of the Windmills, which is the first audio file, and then Derivative Rag Melody, and then Rachel's Walk, and then String Theory, and then two or three others. And I will play at the end of the show, after Dan and I hang up, I will play both Derivative Rag Melody and String Theory, because I love both of them. I was trying to figure out, because I normally just do a song at the beginning, a song at the end, and I thought, but these are all good, plus we're going to play one coming up soon um, during the show. So I would imagine since Flight of the Windmills, Derivative Rag, and String Theory are between 2010 and 2014 that you use that Santa Cruz on all three of those. 
That's correct. I think I use the Santa Cruz on all of the acoustic stuff on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming up, there will be some uh, some tunes that I do on the classical. Uh, but for right now, yeah, all the all everything that's on there on the website that is uh, acoustic guitar is using the uh, the Santa Cruz. Now, when you how often do you play classical? Every day. Do you? Yeah. As a matter of fact, that has become. Uh, more my instrument that I play probably more than the Santa Cruz now. I, they're both out sitting next to my guitar stand and my, where I, I play. I have a little setup in my my living room with my special guitar stool and uh, the instrument sitting out. But I've been playing a lot of classical because it's a little easier on my hands these days. And also, I've uh, any of the, the gigs I've been fortunate to play in recent times have been for weddings and stuff like that and they don't want classical and it's a little easier to play it's some of the classical stuff sounds much better on the nylon string that does on the steel string although mm-hmm. you can do both and i have a wedding for my niece coming up shortly so i am playing some stuff for her on the nylon string now when you play for a wedding like that do the bride and groom ask for specific pieces or did they let you choose uh, some of both actually um for for the the times the, the most recent ones i've done people have have heard some things that i've played and they say oh we want you to play this for uh for when the bride comes in and we want this and then they'll they may have something specific that they want in addition to that and that's what's happening right now with uh, Julia's wedding. She requested a particular song for her for the bridal entrance, but for the uh, for everybody else to come in and for everybody to leave. Then they're picking some of the stuff that I'm that they heard on the website already, and or that she's heard me play over the years. They're used as a matter of fact. Flight of the Windmills, which you played earlier, is what we will be using for everybody to walk back out from because that's a nice little happy bouncy tune and you can and keep just keep it going forever until everybody is out. So now when you play a wedding like that, how do you amplify or don't you amplify? I do. Uh for this I will be using the uh Bose tower that I have. It's Mm -hmm. the mid range one with the speakers coming down halfway. Um and but it will be outside. If it were inside, I would use a mic, but since it's going to be outside, I'm thinking about installing a pickup in the classical for that because I haven't, I've gotten away this long without one, so I haven't needed it in the, the classical guitar, but I think I might do it before their wedding. Uh, but if not, I'll just use a mic for it. I do have a couple of un, uh, things that, that you don't have to drill holes in the guitar to use a little clip-on mic and stuff like that but that the sound has not been adequate so if i if i'm going to mic it i'll use an external mic now when you play the santa cruz professionally when i say professionally at a gig does that have an internal pickup or do you use a mic in front of that i'm trying to remember yeah, I uh, there is a pickup. It's a, a Bags Anthem, which is a combination of an under saddle and a, uh, a mic, tiny microphone inside, and you can uh, mix the two uh, uh, to have more or less sound from the 
under saddle pickup or more or less sound from the mic. And I, depending on the room I'm playing, I'll, I'll uh, have more or less signal from one or the other. And then, but there's only, it's not a stereo pickup. It's still a mono pickup. Mm-hmm. Now, I would imagine that your classical guitar, the strings don't need to be changed very often. I could be wrong, because I do know that when you string up, put a fresh set of strings on a classical, they take a long time to settle in. Oh, yeah. Yes, they do. As a matter of fact, I'm going to change the strings on on the classical probably this week, because the uh, the wedding is at the uh, end of May, uh, May the 23rd, and I want to have plenty of time for, for the <laughs> nylon strings to settle in. It really doesn't take quite that long, but uh, I, I don't want to take any chances. The, the third string in particular, which is the thickest of the nylon strings, is the one that tends to just take the longest time to stretch out. Now, speaking of that, do they make classical sets where the third string is wound or not? Yes, but they're usually flamenco sets. Mm-hmm. The uh, uh, and the and the third string is wound, but it's wound with nylon rather than wound with with uh, metal. So uh, the, it looks a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't use. Uh, I have accidentally purchased one of those in the past a couple times, but not on purpose because I don't like the wound string on the classical, and specifically the uh, the treble notes, the the melody notes that you play are more often going to occur on the wound, on the unwound strings and the plain strings. And you, there's a lot more tone uh, texture and variation that you can get on the, the unwound strings on the classical. So I, I prefer to uh, have the third string unwound on the classical. Now is the, are the flamenco guitars or the flamenco style is that more of a snappy kind of a sound compared to what we would consider classical or my just no pick- no you're you're right it, it, it's often used as accompaniment for uh dancing mm-hmm. for the dancers you know you have flamenco dancers and flamenco and, and it's much more percussive uh, so there's a lot of uh, strumming and, and striking the instrument and the instruments are built somewhat differently as well they're not uh, sometimes the uh, uh, they use different woods. Cypress is one of the woods I think that they use mm-hmm. more frequently. So you get a brighter sound, and uh, uh, and the style of playing is different too. It, you know, the flamenco players—they're similar. I mean, if if somebody who had not was unfamiliar completely with classical guitar heard a flamenco guitarist and a classical guitarist, they would probably be able to tell the difference in most of the things that they play. But some things that would go, what's the difference? Now, has Dan Mack ever played flamenco? Very rarely. It's it's not a, a style that I ever uh, tried to learn very much of because, uh, for one thing, I don't have any dancers to play for. Mm-hmm. But uh, but uh, the, I like the the musical uh, the repertoire for classical better than I like the flamenco repertoire. So, how do you come up with your ideas for musical pieces? Your finger styles. Is it, it just noodling, and you you come up with something? Oh, that sounds kind of cool, and then it just kind of grows from there. Or do you come up with a specific? Well, gosh, I want to use alternating thumb plus. You know, how do you go about that? 
but some of some of each. One of the first pieces that I wrote where I was trying to learn alternating thumb style. You know, I was playing classical, but that's and of course your thumb is independent, but it wasn't doing that boom chick boom chick thing. So I was trying to learn how to do that style, and so I wrote a song that did that. Hmm. So which then forced me to do it. And <laughs> and other than that, uh, I sometimes I'll get a little notion in my head about something that'll that I think will sound good on guitar, and then I'll go try to play it. Sometimes it sounds the way I expected it to. Sometimes it doesn't. But I'd say more than half the time it's because I'm sitting around noodling on something and, and something comes to mind and I go, oh, that's a nice little lick. And then more of it just sort of pours out after that. I don't have to think a whole lot about it. Uh, it <clears throat> Well, in your bio, in your website, it says accomplished musician, songwriter, and composer. Composing, to me, is generating a, a musical piece of some sort, whether it's a song or just an instrumental. But do you work by notating the notes, or do you just play it? Both. I Usually, if I'm writing something, I'll just play it first. But I do like to have the notes written down so that somebody else can play it if they want to. Uh, that's tedious, though. So uh, it, it takes me a while to get things done that I have composed because the, I don't have a lot of incentive to do it. It's not like people are clamoring to purchase my songs, to purchase the sheet music. But it's something that I do uh, have the capability of doing, and I, I want to have... I want to get all of my uh, instrumentals notated. Right now, I have you know, just a few of them notated. Now, isn't there, and I, and I don't remember for sure, but I seem to remember someone commenting either on Facebook or maybe on their website and say, saying that they use some sort of a, an app or a program that they play the music and it automatically notates you know, I've heard of those. I know that there's at least one out there, and I thought about getting what and see, but I have been too lazy to do that. I'm not sure how well it works. I'm sure that it it works well enough to get a bunch of it down, but then you would also have to go back in and and fix things. And the other thing about uh, for finger stuff, what I'm doing anyway, is that I have to notate certain fingerings as well mm -hmm. because as you know on the guitar there's lots of places where you can play any given note right so if i want to make sure that this part is played on the seventh fret instead of on the first fret then uh, i need to notate that in the in the music as well and i there i do have uh software that i use for that but uh, and the good thing about the software is not as opposed to writing it out by hand is that you can do the copy and paste thing. So I don't have to write the same line over again. repeated <laughs> line. Yeah. Well, that would but make I, sense. I do want to check out the the ones where you play into it and it writes it out for you because the pitches would be right anyway, presumably. Mm -hmm. And then then I'd just have to to add in the fingerings. I would imagine having the sheet music. And I understand, like you said, you don't have people knocking on your door asking to purchase your, your, you know, your tablet or whatever. But I would imagine if you ever did, someone said, gosh, you know, I, I have a friend who's a violinist and I have a, a cello player. We'd love to play some of your stuff with the 
sheet music, you can hand it to them and they can figure out their part much easier if they're a, a you know, a reader of music. Oh, yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I've done that before. Uh, one of my pieces uh, will play. Uh, I needed to have somebody else play it. So I gave the sheet music for it. Mm-hmm. Now that brings up a question. I know that you have, well, you, you've been, well, prior to the pandemic hitting, you and, and our good friend Michael Scherf have done a duo, the Dan and Mike, or the Mac and Scherf, however you want to name it. The, um, but you've done a lot of, besides solo work, you've done a lot of band or ensemble work, haven't you? Yes. As a matter of fact, that was how I first started. I mean, the, the uh, I was always playing in folk trios or something in high school and in bands in college. And when I was at music school at the Shenandoah, that's where I met several of the players for uh, the band that I was in called Windfall, which some of the our local friends uh, may remember from if they're old enough. Uh, and yeah, I played both acoustic and electric guitar in that band and do acoustic and electric for whoever, whoever wants to hire me right now. When Mike and I play, I play mostly electric uh, in the band. I would probably play more acoustic, but then that would mean I'd have to drag out the, the acoustic guitar and for you know three songs and it doesn't seem to be worth it. Sure. Well, you are a very talented accompanist. Um, I always have trouble with that word. It gets stuck in my upper teeth. It never comes out right. But the because I've only seen you solo or with Michael, I've never seen you in you know in a band situation. But you are very very good at lead fills and lead runs without getting in the way. If that makes any sense. Well, I'm glad to hear that because that's something that I try to do is not get in the way. <laughs> Well, so many lead guitarists, well, I, I shouldn't say so many, but I have heard lead guitarists who it's almost like, and there's supposed to be an accent to the song, and by the end of the song you're going, well, you know, it was the lead player and the rest of the band trying to keep up. Right, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that that does to me, that's uh, not what the music is all about. I mean, there there's plenty of time when the music should be all about, here's the soloist and and see how great they are. But in general, for the stuff that I play, the emphasis is on the song as a whole or on the singer. You know, the, the, if you can't understand the words because the lead guitar player is playing over top of everything, then that is kind of uh, does not uh, help the song. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the uh, group Windfall, that was back in, I, I guess, the 1970s. Is that right? That's right. Now, how long was that band together? Well, we started as a folk trio in 1974, and uh, I think I the band sort of dissolved and went various ways in uh, 78 or 79. So it was together for about five years, you know, something like that. And then on the song "Tell It to the Judge," which we I'm going to play in a moment, the uh, um, that was the Dan Mac band. Well, yeah, that was actually a studio band. There, there oh. was no band that goes along with that. That was I, I had gone to uh, Columbus, Ohio, to visit my friend Charlie Blake there, who who I was in college with, and uh, we did an album together back in college called Hoy Polloi. But uh, I was out there, and he has a 
a studio friend, a guy who has a studio and um, I had sent him some stuff that I wanted to get recorded and he was going to help me do it. So we went out there and uh, we put the band together and it was strictly a studio band. They never got any live, uh, live gigs out of that band. Well, what was the makeup of the band? It was me on acoustic guitar and vocals, Charlie on bass and all backing vocals, and a man named Jim Lynch on lead guitar and uh, drum track. Well, what I found interesting, and we will play it, but the the first couple times I, I listened through, because I like to listen to the songs three, four, five times before I choose which one's going to be the lead-in music song for the, the podcast and which one is the outro, was what I didn't notice the first couple times, because I wasn't paying particular close enough attention, was you play an acoustic guitar, and I didn't know if you were playing both the electric and the, and the, the acoustic, but during the song, you're playing some runs on the acoustic guitar that most people probably won't pick out, but it was extremely well done and added to the song. Um, it's just kind of down below the vocal and it's not all the time, but it's, it's absolutely wonderful. So you did a great job on that. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And let's let people, we won't play the whole song necessarily, but we'll play probably a couple minutes of it. You game for that? Sure. Here it comes. Such a nice, snappy, cool tune. <laughs> Thanks. That was a fun tune to write. Now, the the runs on the acoustic that I was talking about is during that second, 
like it's it's the the verses after the first chorus basically and right. it just kind of pops in now was that something you just did on the fly or you kind of thought it out and like oh i guess that would be kind of nice right there um i don't remember i i pro- pro- probably it was on the fly because I, I don't remember specifically thinking about putting in any particular fills there. So uh, it was either on the fly or it was something that I thought of later and have since forgotten. <laughs> now, was that recorded live, everybody in the studio, or did you, did you track that? No, that was tracked. Uh, when I was doing it live, well, I was playing with with a click track mm-hmm. and then uh, and then did the vocals. And then uh, later, Charlie added his bass part in uh, in the same day that I was there doing the recording of the uh, acoustic guitar and the vocals. Uh, Jim was there playing the electric part. And then uh, uh, later, Charlie added the bass and put in the uh, the rest of the drum track that because you know, that we were just playing to a click track at the time. Now that brings up a question because I, I, well, I don't go into the studio that often, probably once every three or four years, try to record a full song and then go away and don't finish it. But it's very difficult for me. I'm, I'm having to learn to play with the click track. Is that something that was difficult for you or was that just like second nature? Well, I wouldn't say it was second nature because uh, my my tendency for playing is to to rush things. There's a lot of people do the same thing, but I play with a metronome when I'm practicing my classical or when I'm practicing something that I I definitely need to to stay in time with. So when I'm playing with a click track, it's just like I'm playing with a metronome at home. Now, when you say metronome, do you have one of what I call the old style, where the thing kind of it's like a, a upside down pendulum, basically, kind of tick. tick. I, I used to have one. I do not have one anymore. Uh, I'm sad that I don't have it anymore, but it was at some point uh, stolen out of my locker. Ah. Uh, but so, so now I, I rely on the electronic ones. Do you have a preference as to the sound of the, cl- the digital uh, click track ones? Like some of them are very tinny almost sounding. Some are not quite like a bass drum. Does it make a difference, or as long as it's keeping the beat, you don't care? I, I don't like the high-pitched ones. I prefer a lower pitch, mm-hmm. um, but that, that's hard to get on you know, if you're using your phone or if you're using a, one of the little pieces. Uh, sometimes when I'm in the studio, well, actually, instead of having a click track, uh, or, or the click track will be a bass drum. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, of, instead of the, the click, 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 it'll be a, a, a kick drum. Now, are so you? That, I like that. Yeah, that that sounds like a great idea. Now, do you record it like maybe two bars and then just keep looping it? Is that how you do that? Well, when I've done that, it's been uh, part of the software that they have. That you know, it, it, if you're going to put a drum track on, you would just put it for the whole song. So they just start it, and then I come in after the second bar or something, and then just keep it on going. They don't have. It's not a pre-recorded thing. It is. It's digital still. Sure. It's a great idea, though, because I find it very difficult. They're either that that high-pitched tinny click, or it's like a boink-boink, which they both drive me nuts. Right, right. And so what I do is I, I, I 
find myself focusing on the noise rather than trying to play the song, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it, it, I would suggest you try that with it because there, if any studio is going to have uh, you know, drum tracks that mm -hmm. they can give you or uh, and sometimes I've, I've used more than one drum. I've had like the bass drum and then maybe a, a snare drum on beat one or two and four or something like that. So I know exactly where I am within the measure. So it's uh, if, when you're in the studio, there's no reason to use just a click if you don't like it. Right. Now, when you recorded the, again, the first piece, Flight of the Windmills, and then String Theory and Derivative Rag Medley, did you record those at home, or did you go into a studio to do that? No, those are recorded at a studio, a Tone House studio. It, it is uh, owned and operated by uh, a very uh, excellent guitarist, Zan McLeod. I don't know if you know of Zan or not, but he is he is a fantastic instrumentalist. Um, and he has a studio in his house, and I, that's where I recorded all those instrumentals uh, is, was with Zan. Now, if you recall, is it one mic or two? How, how did you record the guitar? Uh, they were different ones. One, the, the first ones that I did earlier were with two mics. And then the second one, uh, the later ones, were done with one mic and the output from the uh, LR Bags pickup. Oh which gave us a great sound. Mm -hmm. uh, I was sort of surprised that Zan said, oh, I like that sound. We'll just go with that one in addition to the mic. And it, it turned out just fine. Yeah. Now, do you get nervous before you go into the studio, before you start recording, or have you done oh, it yeah. enough? Do you? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm always nervous about it. And as a matter of fact, the uh, I, I'm not real happy with the results of, some of the stuff that that is on the website now but i didn't at some point i'm going to go back and re-record some of the later things because i i can play them better now for one thing uh but yeah i i get nervous and when i get nervous my hands get cold mm -hmm. and when your hands are cold then you don't play that well but it, it's it's also gives you a little bit of uh, extra adrenaline so sometimes that that's a good thing but you know the I don't. I would never say I'm relaxed in the studio. I'm not always, you know, panicking or anything. But um, it, it's not something that I'm. I've done enough of that is second nature to me. Well, I've heard several or read in some of the articles several high-profile guitarists. Willie Porter um, is, is one of them who I really got into when I first got back into guitar back in the the. Uh, early 2000s, and he made the comment of, you know, he doesn't like going into the studio because the engineer tells him he has to maintain a good tuning on the guitar. He says, I don't tune with it. At that point, he didn't tune with the tuner. He would just tune it to where he thought it sounded good and would go. And the guy said, no, you can't do that because other people are going to be playing with you. So he found it somewhat stressful. Now, maybe not now since he's been recording for so long, but... I do find it stressful. Um, one of the reasons is because with so much computer equipment, they tend to be cool temperature-wise. Right. And like you said, your hand gets cold. It's like playing outside when it's 50 degrees or less. The fingers just don't work the, the same way. Right, right. So, well, no, go ahead. I, the, the, uh, I don't, haven't had a problem that I can recall with 
the temperature being too cold, I mean, it's, it's never as warm as I would like perhaps, but uh, I have not been in the same room with the electronics. Sure. You know, I mean, and then a, a, a studio uh, sound room. So that hasn't, they, they haven't had to keep it as that cool in those rooms because the all the equipment is in a different room. Well, besides your performing and your recording, you also have been for the last couple of years at least, and maybe longer than that, but I'm only aware of it over the last couple of years. And when I say last couple of years, I mean the year or two prior to the pandemic and then during the pandemic, you've been an open mic host. That's right. Uh, I started doing that in uh, 2015 at a uh, little restaurant in Gaithersburg called the Stonehouse Grill. And that was quite a nice little place. I, for a while, I, I was playing a solo act one night and then doing the uh, open mic a different night. But then the open mic seemed to be the thing that was uh, getting the most people to come. So we kept that up. And it was on Monday nights. And we, we did that for several years. Uh, it was a great little place because the, they had a separate room. Uh, which normally would have been like a banquet room or something or, or just another dining room, but there was no TV in there and the bar wasn't in there, so there was no extra noise. And everybody who came in knew that they were there into that room because there was music going to be in there. They either came in to play or to listen. And so it was a, a nice, cozy little place to play and it was got quite popular. Uh, they unfortunately had to to close the restaurant he sold the restaurant to someone else and then uh so they it's now a, a mexican place and mm-hmm. that had that wasn't conducive to what i was doing there there they were uh, and they and they had a lot of construction for months on end so uh, i couldn't play that so i switched it to another place and that didn't work out as well so i started looking for somewhere else to uh run the open mic and then we got a pandemic so it turns out that well what I'm going to do is run it from my house, and and then it, it's been quite uh, quite interesting because now location is not an issue. Nobody can say, "Oh, I, I'm too far away; I can't come this week," because all you got to do is log in. Yeah. So now we we've had folks from as far away as California and Wisconsin, and we haven't had anybody outside the U.S. Uh, join us yet, but I uh, expect that that might happen at some point. Now, is it, you do it via Zoom, I, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's a Zoom meeting, which we are then live stream on Facebook, on the on the Facebook page. There, there's a Facebook page called Dan Mac Presents, mm-hmm. and that's the, that's the open mic page where people can go on and, you know, if they want to, to see it happen live, then they can log on and look, uh, you know, go to that page on Monday night at 7 and it's going to be there uh, or if that's where people will post their any of their own interesting things or uh, uh, where I tell people it's okay it's time to sign up for Monday now how did the, like the person from California how did they find out about it was it just uh, through uh, somebody said hey gosh you should check this out I, you know. well it was a friend of mine who I went to college with uh, who I was on the phone with him and he was talking to a friend of his, another of his friends in California, who was also a musician. So he said, oh, by the way, you should get together. So we, he did say it was, so it was through a friend of a friend. 
and he found out about it that way. The the guy from Milwaukee, I found, I was on another Zoom meeting with uh, a woman named Muriel Anderson, who oh, was yes. a fantastic yeah. fan. Yeah, well, I, I'm one of her fans, and she has these uh, Zoom workshops that she does occasionally. So I was on one of those, and one of the other fellows that was on there was Larry, who from Milwaukee, and he then later looked me up and found my email address and contacted me to say, I see you do an open mic. I'd like to join. So that's how that worked out. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Now, what got you interested in hosting an open mic in the first place? <laughs> I wanted a gig. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it was after I uh, sort of semi-retired from the IT world. And I want to start playing music more frequently again. And so I uh, was looking for some place to do solos. And rather than trying to do one week here, one week there, I was looking for some place that I could do a, a regular thing. So I, I bundled it with doing an open mic. And they'd had an open mic at this particular spot. And the uh, for but, but it hadn't gone for very long before the the young man who was running it was going off to college he'd been doing it for a few weeks there so i said well i can take that over for you and uh, do the solo thing too so they they said sure so i started doing it there and it then it it's a sort of uh snowballed it got uh, rather well known and popular so that was quite gratifying now what do you think is the most difficult part of hosting an open mic right now the most difficult part is getting people to sign up and and making the schedule it was much easier to do it live because mm -hmm. i would show up and i'd set up you know there's an hour of setup and an hour of tear down then people walk in and they sign up so there was no matter but and then they would sign up for wherever they wanted to be on the schedule but now you can't do that. It, it has to be prepared in advance. People have to know the schedule. They have to have the link. <clears throat> they have to be able to sign in and get their own sound. And I can't run sound for anybody. They, it's all their own sound. So, and everybody's got a different setup. So when they log in to get everybody to come into the meeting early so that we can hear their sound and they've got to remember to turn on the original sound setting. And sometimes their mic is off. And, or So everybody has their own individual settings that we have to work through. Uh, and that's probably the biggest thing is to try to get everybody's sound good because some people are going through a, a good mic into a computer or a mixer or something. And some people are using their phone and everything in between. So there's a, a lot of, a lot of work trying to make the sound good, and I don't really have control over that because I can't, you know, I can't control where they are in relation to their mic or anything like that. So that's the hardest part is to make make it sound good and to get everybody there on time and logged in and all of that stuff. Now, do you have any problems with latency where their mouth starts to move and then a second or two seconds later you hear the sound? Every once in a while we'll get that, but uh, not very, not very often. Uh, and what happens more than that, where we, is that somebody will, it'll, it'll freeze a little bit for a second, and then, then the music like goes real fast until it catches up with where it's supposed to be. Yep. 
but that uh, that doesn't seem to happen that often. Where the main issue is the sound quality itself. Yeah. Now, what do you use on your end for sound for that? Well, on my end, I uh, use a microphone going into a, a little Alesis mixer, which is one of the things that I used uh, as the other open mic as a sort of a, a secondary mixer because I would have, sometimes have multiple uh, inputs that needed to go into the bows. So I use that. I use a mic that goes into that, and then I take a, an output from that because it has a USB out, and that goes into the computer, which then is the sound for... Uh, for the Zoom meeting, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I get pretty decent sound out of that. I for a while I was running uh, both guitar output from the uh, the pickup and like, but I really don't even need to do that. It's, I get just as good a sound uh, for with just the one mic since there's no other sound in the room. I'm not competing with anybody except myself. Now, do you have a space? where you're kind of protected from outside sounds like do you have uh, foam or anything or curtains to or is it just sitting in your your music space in the living room or the family room wherever you normally play what's well, sitting uh downstairs in the uh the computer room because that's where the that stuff is not do put a, a curtain behind me but it's more for visual mm-hmm. than anything else uh i don't you know so if a dog starts barking outside well, you know, that's the way it goes. But that have, really hasn't been much of a problem. And the other thing is that <clears throat> that I play at the beginning of the night and every once in a while at the end. So uh, I, if I'm only playing a couple songs, whatever else is going on sound-wise isn't really going to be an issue because I'm muted while everybody else is playing. Right. How many people per show... Or I guess it varies, but what's on, on average? How many people join in? Well, lately we've getting we've been getting maybe uh, fifteen or so. That many? So yeah. Now there's sometimes there's been more. Sometimes we've had up to twenty, which is a, a, a real chore because you know that's trying to get everybody in and uh, all that amount of time. But it's you know. It's good if if they want it. If we have that many people, every once in a while I've had to say, "I'm sorry, we just don't have room. You you signed up too late to try to do mm-hmm. it this week." Uh, but it's we then we've had as few as you know six or eight. But that hasn't happened lately. Now that the word has gotten out that we're doing it, uh, we seem to have a you know at least twelve to fifteen uh, just about every week. Sometimes. I don't like to have more than 18 because that's two songs per person for three hours. And that, it's a long time. Yeah. Now, when the pandemic hopefully dries up, goes away, we never see it again, and indoor venues open again, are you going to continue this online open mic or are you going to phase that out and go back to venues, live venues? I think I'm going to do both. Mm-hmm. Because right now I'm just doing it every other week uh, because it, people don't realize how, how much work it actually is to do. So I'm only doing it every other week. Uh, so when it, when we can go back to live venues, I'm going to see if I can find some place to do that once a month and do the, the online one once a month or you know some, some periodic interval. I don't know exactly what it will be. But 
I, I would hope to do both because there are some of the folks who would not get to do it otherwise uh, wouldn't be able to play if they didn't do the Zoom thing. Mm-hmm. But then we would miss the live thing because that's a whole different experience, and I want to do both. Well, there's there's nothing like live performing in my my book. I you know it's I love playing sitting in the living room or wherever I play at home. I I enjoy it. However, it is different than playing live, whether there's somebody in the audience or not. I don't mind. I mean, I hate playing to an empty room at a venue where you know, they need to make money. But from my own perspective, it's nice to have feedback from the audience, but I, I, you know, playing in an empty room is just, it's a different type of fun for me. I don't know how you feel for that. I mean, other than the fact that I feel badly for the venue. Yeah. Well, it's, it's brutal because you don't get any feedback at all. Correct. Now, one of the things that I do on the, on the zoom uh, open mics is I have a, a little app on my phone for applause. So that when <laughs> somebody gets done, I'll hit the applause. You know, if people will unmute themselves and applaud some, but that's a little sort of a smattering. But it really, after you play and then there's dead silence, it's kind of disconcerting after having spent you know, an entire career playing for an audience that will actually applaud afterwards. I, and, and if they don't, then you know you've got a problem. So. That's true. I did. A, I, I interviewed Rod, Ron Kutzler, who does a, an online open mic out of the Reisterstown, Baltimore area. And he's not, he, he's never gone into the recording studio. So he sent me some sound files that he recorded on his phone and just the sound quality. And like so many people, they set the phone down in front of them on the tabletop or wherever. And of course the microphone's picking up the guitar and the, the voice becomes secondary and uh, I was able to warm it up a little bit in, in the garage bands, but I, I did it as an open mic because that's the way the sound quality was. Right. And so what I did is I downloaded this. <laughs> and it worked really well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, the little app that I use... Uh, the the more time it, you 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 tap it, the louder the applause. Oh, really? <laughs> if you tap it once, it's just this sort of smattering of a small audience. A couple times, then you have more. And if you tap it two or three, four times, then you start getting people yelling and shouting. And stuff. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun. Oh, that is great. Well, this has been a lot of fun for me, Dan. I hope you've had an, an enjoyable time. I, I have. This has been a lot of fun. I've, uh, uh, what song are you going to play for our, our outro? Well, I'm going to play two. I was debating back and forth between derivative rag medley and string theory because I love them both. And I kept thinking, gosh, which one am I going to do? Because I'd listen to you know, string theory and i go, okay, that's the one I'm going to use. And I'd finish with that one and I'd say, well, okay, I'll just check out derivative rag medley again. Oh no, that's the one I'm going to use. So what I decided I'm going to do is I'm going to be the DJ and you and I will say goodbye and then I will play Derivative Rag Medley and at the end of Rag Medley I will introduce String Theory and play it again. So the people listening are going to get about seven and a half to almost eight minutes of of your recorded songs. Wow. <laughs> okay. Because I couldn't choose. Well, then then since you're going to do those two and then I appreciate you doing that. That's, that's great. 
um, I, I do have to say one thing about one of the other pieces on there, sure. which we touched briefly on before, which is Rachel's Walk. Uh, that one, the backstory behind that one is that I had written a couple of pieces, and my daughter and her then fiance came over to my house. Uh, and I said, Oh, you guys got to listen to these tunes. So I played the one that's kind of a ragtime tune. That's the most derivative rag, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they cussed me out. Oh, yeah, that's nice. And then I played Rachel's Walk and my daughter, who was Rachel. Uh, and I didn't have a name for it at the time. I just played the piece. And after I was done, I looked up and she had tears in her eyes. And she says, Now I know what I want to walk down the aisle to. Oh. <clears throat> so, uh, so I used that's the one that I first had to write out because I had to get somebody else to play it when I was walking her down the aisle. Oh, good point. So uh, so that's that's another one when we were talking about the weddings. That's an ideal bridal entrance piece, because that's another one that I can either keep cut it short or keep it going as long as it takes for the bride to actually get down the aisle. Well, for those so, of the folks who are listening, you can go to danmacmusic.com and listen to Rachel's Walk. I didn't download that onto my, my mixer, and I apologize. I didn't realize that was your daughter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and that's that's a, a song that I like. I mean, I like all of my tunes, but uh, uh, that one seems to be one that that uh, it, that other folks like more consistently than they like the other stuff. Uh, so, but I, yeah, I wish that I had some of these things available for purchase or download or something. But I have just been too lazy to get around to doing any of that. Hopefully this year, I had big plans to do recording last year, but then we all know what happened. Yes. So hopefully this year I will get back into the studio and get some more stuff recorded and have some uh, things that people can actually download at some point. Uh, so there's that. Well, when you do, please let me know so I can download it or purchase the physical CD if you actually you know have those pressed or however you want to do it. I, I'd love to hear it. Well, thanks a lot, Todd. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you uh, including me in your your podcast group. And just so that you know, um, we're recording this on Saturday, April the 24th. The show will go live this coming Wednesday. Oh, great. So I'll let people know. Yeah, very good. Well, Dan, again, thanks so much. Uh, please tell Sassy I said hi. I will do so. Thanks so much. Talk and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was Dan Mack. What a fun conversation that was. And I wish I had downloaded Rachel's Walk since he was just chatting about it. I didn't, but I did download Derivative Rag Medley, which is coming up right now.
We've been listening to Dan Mack's derivative rag medley solo guitar from his recording done in 2014. And this now is called String Theory. The Wisp Me Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wisp Me Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. All the music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link, wispymopmusic.podbean.com, or you can find the show on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks again to Dan Mack for joining me today. We'll catch you again next time.